this show is sponsored by um, Linux Professional Institute Southern Africa. Uh, Linux Professional Institute Southern Africa are responsible for the whole Southern African region for promoting the LPR certifications levels one to three. You know, it's one of the premier Linux certifications in the world. It's internationally recognized. Um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, training partners, registered training partners in South Africa and the rest of Africa. Um, and obviously you can take any of the exams at the Pearson View testing centers, which are throughout the world. If you want to see what the objectives are and for each of the levels of certification, you can go to lpr.org. And also there's, you know, plenty of books and material available to help people study, as well as obviously um, these available training institutions, which you can utilize. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of Coding in Africa. I'm your host, Mark Clark. I work for a solution integration company here in Johannesburg, South Africa, called Jumping Bean. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Fowler. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, Mark? Yeah, oh, good, thanks. You know, it's Saturday morning again. Uh, spring is coming. Uh, you know, first of September spring day for us here in South Africa. And man, it's lovely weather now. It's nice and warm. It's getting a bit too warm in my sunroom where I kind of work in winter. Uh-huh. You know, because the sun comes in, it's like a glass enclosed room and stuff. I must actually get some blinds now. Because I put it up just end of summer last year and it was really great in winter man i could i could actually type on my keyboard oh nice in winter without yeah yeah so it was like super cool, <laughs> cool. and um yeah now i must just get some more money to yeah, put up it's quite nice you can see the birds in the garden you know uh we've got told uh this one weaver bird we call him bob the builder mm-hmm. he kind of comes and he builds his nest yeah you know they make quite elaborate nests but no, no it's a bit weird about this dude is that like all the other weaver birds like in durban my mm-hmm. hometown uh, they f- kind of form communities, right? And there's yeah. a whole bunch of nests. And this guy, he doesn't believe in that social community living stuff. Eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he builds his own nest. He doesn't have any other birds next to him. Eh? So he's he's a you know um, he's an individual. Uh, okay. He's he's an individualist. You know, he uh, doesn't believe in, in sharing. <laughs> right. Got it. Oh, man. Anyway, and, and and yourself? Oh no, not really. Um, it's a really also it's also a very nice spring day here in Addis. Uh, uh, just nice and pleasant. I mean, I'm not actually sure what I'd call the uh, season, but it's you know yeah. it's nice and dry yeah, today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in East Africa, they normally they just have they don't have like four seasons. They just call it the wet season and the dry season. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, so yeah. it feels like spring. So that's good enough. It feels like yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's also nice where you don't have too many too bad winters. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like there's no water or there's water. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, man, just to let people know, like we've got you know I'm like the Pulse Audio Ninja now of note. I've got this thing. I've got my fancy mic set up, and uh, I'm trying to do two streams recording. So one is just my side, and then Dan's recording his side, and then one with the sort of both of us mixed together, kind of like a, a backup. So hopefully we can get better audio quality um you know but but i had this discovery today as i hauled out this my samson mark to to use you know i plugged it in and i said you know i wonder why i said this is cool i didn't notice it before there's this there's this green light that shows you when the power's on oh wow. i said i wonder why they put it at, yeah so i thought i wonder why they put it at the back of the mark so I worked out. I've been talking into the into the wrong uh, end of the mark. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, total noob. Uh, yeah. Anyway, maybe that's why you know because it's got this like dipole directional mark. And sure. I, I was talking at the back of it, so I suppose it just had what you call it like the uh, I can't remember what the technical term is, but the backsplash or the you know the it picks up the the sound into the mark. So maybe my my sound will be better this this time around as well. Uh-huh. So yeah, you know we all uh, live and learn. Anyway, on to the, the show. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is we have our normal, we have our section. So, uh, you know, we're trying to get a structure to the show and we try and follow it. Um, we're going to try and keep some time limits as well going forward. We have the show and tell, which is supposed to be about, um, you know, new devices or new pieces of equipment or anything like that that we found and want to talk about um, for this particular episode or for the particular episode we, we're recording. Um, sometimes there's not really... Um, you know, sometimes we just don't have stuff to talk about, right? right. Uh, and then the, we go on to sort of what we learned this week. And that normally forms the core discussion, uh, you know, about what we've been learning. And we discuss issues around that and anything interesting that we discovered and found out. And we share it with listeners, um, you know, in any 
anything that we've kind of picked up along the way. Mm-hmm. And then also after the discussions, we might have like a listener feedback when you start getting listener feedback, you know, if anybody's got any comments or if we explain something wrong. So like we have like an errata section where we can fix up what, what we did wrong. Sure. Um, and, you know, uh, make corrections to that because obviously we don't know everything and we do make mistakes. Yeah, so, um, Dan, do you have any other sections to add there? Or do you... Uh, yeah, and then uh, at the end, uh, we'll uh, do a gig guide um, showing, uh, describing hopefully, you know, nice events that are happening nearby. Uh, usually, uh, I'm at this point, I'm, I don't, I'm not really so uh, plugged into the whole Addis network, um, but, you know, you have a lot of... Uh, uh, Linux or you know general you know tech meetups in Joburg, eh? Yeah, yeah. I report back on those, and as as we, I'm sure once you get back into it, there you know start working with the tech hubs that are active in Addis, um, you know you'll get some more info there. And also, what we want is obviously any listeners, if you've got any um, meetups that you're interested in, want us to advertise or let people know about, please feel free to email us. So the email addresses have been set up, uh, Dan at Coding in Africa and Mark at Coding in Africa, um, dot com. Okay, so Mark at Coding in Africa and Dan at Coding in Africa dot com. Um, yeah, and eventually we'll get Twitter accounts and contact forms and all of that stuff set up when we, you know, as we keep on saying, it's, it's a work in progress right. in our spare time. We kind of put things together and uh, hopefully by the time we get to episode like 20 or 25, we'll have everything in place. Sure. <laughs> And also just to say, sometimes we're at a section in called a, a discussion section where we might go more in depth on topics. And it'll probably be something that flows out of like what we learned this week discussions. Um, so yeah, we'll have those. It might be another sort of area or topic that we will, we will have. Um, and as I say, as the show goes on, we will evolve these different sections and um, add to them to take away or see what works or maybe, you know, change them slightly. Okay. So I suppose the first section is show and tell. Um Dan, do you have anything to, to show and tell about this week? Um, I haven't uh, purchased anything new recently. Uh, the only thing I wanted to highlight was the fact that our show is also now in the iTunes podcast directory, uh, as well as you know your other sort of uh, podcast directories. Like uh, I can see it on uh, Pocket Casts now. I don't know how it got there, but it's there. That's really great. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, unfortunately, I don't have any kind of new toys to play around with. I mean, I have some Raspberry mm-hmm. Pis. I'm trying to do something with, but uh, aside from that, I've got nothing. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh, let us know when you when you start working on those Raspberry Pis. I also got a couple. You know what's annoying is you get them and you, before you get a chance to work with them, they bring out a new model. <laughs> it's like really annoying. <laughs> no, that actually happened to me last year, uh, mm-hmm. or whenever they recently announced that new model, I had. Um, mm-hmm just purchased the uh the i guess what do you call it the, the sort of the the cheap the the nicer low power more memory version oh, before yeah. the raspberry 2 it was the model b plus before the model yeah model b plus b yeah. plus whatever two or whatever and uh yeah so i purchased uh, i got stuck with an older version yeah they should have a law against that man they really should you know, like money but yeah <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, let, let, let us know how, how that goes. Um, and my side, I, I wanted to, I'm doing some research into RP cameras and analog cameras. You know, we're getting uh, sort of, uh, what you call it, uh, CCTV, I suppose, you know, set up at the office there. Uh, mainly because we have an exam room and we don't want to have like a, a tutor or a proctor standing and watching people all the time because it's not like very big. You know, um, so we just, we just shoved the camera in there, but that's something I'd always wanted to do and research. Look, you know, plus also, um, you know, I live in South Africa and, you know, uh, security is always an issue, yeah? Right. <laughs> so maybe put some up at home and, um, you know, so it's two aspects. One is for security, but probably more for fun and, and research to learn stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've got a couple of different models. Um, you know, the first one I bought was this Planet. Um, people might not know about Planet, but it's this Taiwanese company. And they produce these like they normally the lower end or the cheaper cheaper models, and hardware wise I think they're okay. Okay. But software wise they're complete crap. You know <laughs> I hope that doesn't. I think that's an okay word to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, really they complete they complete junk. 
Um, you know, so normally you have to work around. Luckily with Linux, um, in a, you just want to set this thing into some kind of dumb mode. Just give me the stream or, yeah, like if you're doing an ADSL router, just, just go into bridge mode. I don't really want to use any of your firmware. Yeah. Um, so it's okay for that once you work it out, but you have to do a bit of investigation around it. So that one is the first one I got up and running. And then I've got a Hick Vision and a VivoTech um, what, both of them are dome cameras, and I'm going to sort of play around there. My main interest around it actually is also the security of these things, because you know, in South Africa, if you uh, travel anywhere, you know, well, you all know the state surveillance, right? And I'm, I'm not sure about other parts of the world, but there's also a lot of private surveillance as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of these, especially in South Africa, there's a lot of these private security companies um, because of the, the crime issue and all of that. Right. I don't know whether there's a plane flying overhead right now, but anyway, <laughs> I don't know if you can pick it up. <laughs> I can hear and, it. Um, you can't know, okay. <laughs> and the, um, the, yeah, so, you know, there, there tends to be quite a big industry in South Africa, um, the security industry. And, you know, it's also a worry for government why they pass all these laws because, you know, the government's concerned about, I suppose, one day a coup or something like that because there's more private security forces than sort of uh, public security forces, as it were. Uh, you know, from our point of view, the other thing as well, they got all these cameras and, what does it all mean? They're all different little companies, but in the long run, you also got to worry about private surveillance. Uh, sure. So yeah, it's all linked together in this big, like, what's it, mix-up of or, or mash-up of, like, privacy concerns, security mm-hmm. concerns, and just, like, cool tech, you know, and playing around with, with imaging and maybe doing things like facial recognition right. and all that kind of stuff. You know, we, you know at the office, it would be cool to be able to do facial recognition and just open the door if we if you register as a staff member kind of thing yeah anyway that uh, i'll give more feedback as as and when um learn about that stuff okay so on to the the next section then the next section is the next section is uh our discussion uh section uh and uh you had something you want to talk about you want to talk about tech hubs yeah i think uh the tech hubs well maybe we'll leave it over for um, episode five because we have a longer discussion because tech hubs is like how they work the different business models um, you know which ones have you experienced I think you and I have seen a couple of tech hubs here in Africa and uh, around you know maybe even in Thailand there I'm not sure whether you managed to visit any and just to see how they work like the maker spaces etc and you know are they something that's going to stay or are they just a flash in the pan and they're not really sustainable it's just like a, a marketing Exercise by a lot of a lot of companies potentially. I mean, you know, uh, what uh, what are you talking about any in particular? Are you talking about the ones in in Joburg, uh, the ones that you've experienced with? Yeah, the ones in Joburg. Um, you know, our hub, the, the famous our hub in Kenya. Um, you know, I know this Ars Addis in, uh, in in Addis Ababa. Uh, you know, what are their funding models? How they're making money? And in terms of a lot of the maker labs, yeah. The, the maker culture that's evolving a lot of these maker labs because you know uh, you know we, we should probably discuss this now then i suppose well maybe it'll be more over two episodes because just to sort of give you some you know as you kind of look into more things and you get to know more things you begin to sort of understand things differently so if you set up an ngo right mm-hmm. um well first of all there's like a club which you all might be familiar with like your you know i don't know your tennis club or whatever and I mean, like we're starting the lug, right? It's just like a group of people get together and we want some kind of body to manage it in some kind of election process. So there's continuity. And if one person leaves, who's going to take over? So it doesn't just collapse. Right. Now, that kind of stuff is no real... You can have some kind of association agreement, which is just like a rules of code, you know, uh, what's it? rules of conduct and that kind of stuff. And, and like uh, what, what, when you have AGMs. Um, but no one really owns it, right? Right. It's just sort of this 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 body, this association, the Linux Foundation, right? So so for example, the Linux Foundation. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's set up. You know, you can't just make these assumptions. Oh well, there's some kind of body with like industry representation, and somehow people get on it, and you know, and, and they represent Linux, right? But no one really kind of owns it as a legal entity anywhere. Sure. Um, you know, not not one individual. And then you hear about other things, so like um, some other foundations, like they are actually owned by individuals, right? So if I went, yeah, so I think so, I want to set up an NGO, mm-hmm. then I need three directors, but those three directors own it. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean, how do you kind of, if, if, if the members feel they want to get rid of the director, how do you do that? Because they don't own, you know what I mean? Mm. And maybe you can, you can have some sort of association agreement set up or something like that. But still, at the end of the day, the power lies with these unelected officials that 
essentially own the organization. They might be advised by some kind of panel or board and it might be not in their best interest to just, you know, not listen to those boards and panels. But end of the day, I mean, I, I was just sort of, I, I was reading up about the FreeBSD Foundation, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's there for the for the BSD world, FreeBSD and stuff, but it's like owned by people, right? So I don't, you don't know how many of these things are like that. Um, how many of them are for-profit, not-for-profit? I mean, some of these other organizations clear, right? Like the Linux Foundation and all of that. Um, but, you know, when you're speaking to some of these guys setting up maker, um, what would you call them? Uh, sort of maker organizations. Some of them are just purely, okay, we are for the community, we are to learn and share knowledge, and it's more like an association. Other guys are like, yo, I want to make money out of this. I mean, obviously, there are all sorts of different sort of uh, organizations you could sort of make that, you know, encourage membership uh, on a certain sort of, you know, shared interest, you know, in, um, well, I'll say that in Thailand, uh, the, there's not so much tech hubs, but a lot of co-working spaces. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not sure how much there are in, in Joburg. I think, I think Josie have, they all try and offer that thing, but that's more like incubator kind of. Right. So some of the roles are incubator roles, which are slightly different to what I was talking about when you're talking about like the Linux user group and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, that's the whole thing. You know, there's there's some incubators, there's kind of startups, you know, I guess meshed together with the startup culture and the hipsterism around, oh, I'm a startup and stuff like that instead of just, you know, I started a new business, it's always a startup. Sure. Yeah, so... I mean, so let me you know, carry on there with your with your observations, and and I think what we can do is you know let's get them let's talk about it, and maybe we can follow up next episode with some further thoughts and um, learnings that we've had along the way. Yeah, well, you know, uh, all I can really say is that you know in Thailand there were uh, a fair number of these spaces, and uh, I actually spent some money on on using them, you know, these co working spaces. Uh, and I, I feel like it was always, um, it was always kind of a, I mean, I was in a special situation. I didn't have like a full sort of like nice apartment to like work from. I mean, it was, I did have an apartment, but it wasn't nice. And, uh, you know, they, they give you free Wi-Fi, they give you some socialization, they give you the use of printers and, and, and the kind of stuff that you need maybe to, uh, do some business. And, uh, I always found it a really great experience, you know? At least in Thailand, I mean, it was so cheap to do. I think you know it was the cost of like maybe a couple, a few coffees, uh, for like a whole day if you wanted to, and uh, yeah, you know, I you know, I wasn't there long enough to make any friends, uh, but it was definitely a, a worthwhile experience, you know, in Thailand. So so let's sort of say move away from the sort of associations. Like I say, for me, if I like the Linux user group and I put it there in the Java user group in Joburg as one kind of association, and I would kind of put more formal organizations like the Linux Foundation in there, uh, even things like the Free Software Foundation, right? Like who's the director, you know, who owns that legal entity that, that gets represented and that kind of thing. Okay, so that's, because that's sort of clearly, on the other hand, you've got these tech cards, which you can kind of divide as you're saying. Some of them are there to... Encourage, in, in, well, encourage innovation and sort of, you know, skill people up, but also to be incubators of some type. And um, typically their, their business models, they've got some kind of sponsorship or funding from somebody else. So it's kind of subsidized uh, workspace. Because I mean, yeah, yeah, in South Africa, there's tons of furnished offices um, you can go and rent it, but normally it's a complete ripoff, you know, you have to pay a lot of money sure. and well, yeah, you get some stuff, but not a lot. Uh, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's cheaper basically to go and start your own office. Right. Um, and then you get the the hubs and they tend to also have like a restriction. Well, you can't sort of sit there forever and like five years later, you're still in the hub, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to kind of uh, migrate out. But I guess for me, it's like, you know, like you don't question. I think you think of some kind of like NGO, well, it's okay. It's all um, for the good of humanity and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, really um, you got to sort of, you know, only time these things become a problem is when there is a problem and then you work out you know for me I guess it's like often you promote these things because you're feeling you're promoting something that's going to help uh, other people right yeah right um, but at the end of the day uh, how much control do you actually have over these organizations or say in them you know if they start doing something that you you don't really support I don't want to put my time and effort into building somebody else's you know, organization that potentially might end up doing something that I don't support. And then I felt, uh, you know, the the general impression you left with is you got some kind of say in how things are happening. Right. You know, 
I mean, like, I suppose it could be like the Mozilla Foundation as well, right? I mean, somebody must own that legally. There must be in the rules and stuff like that, you know, how you can remove a director. But like they say, removing a director is a lot harder than removing, like, the chairman of your of your tennis club, right? <laughs> <laughs> or the Linux user group, if you don't like what they're doing. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, anyway, that's, I guess that's the, I mean, that's the one side of it. So what are the structures and what are their motivations? And, you know, just because it means NGO doesn't really necessarily mean it's for profit. It's not for profit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end of the day, the person doing it is, is, is normally running it to make a living, and that's fine. The reason I started thinking about this, at least from the ownership point of view and how they run and how they governed, um, was because, you know, we want to kind of make some of these organizations, Giants yeah, South Africa, more sustainable. That, like, you know, if the person that started them gets too busy, how do you hand it over to somebody new? Because typically what happens, one individual starts it, then they get too busy, and then it collapses. And then somebody else eventually comes two years later, says, hey, where's the local group for XYZ? Hey, isn't one. Okay, I'm going to start it. You know, and you have that stops, and they never really get any momentum. And also, you know, once you get to a certain size, you need money to start right. doing stuff and to get bigger. Um, and then you need to formalize things. Well, look, you know, I think it, at this point in the conversation, it's worth getting a little concrete here, right? I mean, in one, you know, one example, I, I would say, right, is this sort of uh, Linux user group that we were both, that you founded, and uh, I came in, uh, I guess, a little bit later. And, um, you know, I try to do a lot to, to help build up the group and, you know, make a little website, and, you know, uh, maintain the Twitter account and try to organize meetups and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it was, you know, it was kind of difficult, you know, it was kind of like a, a slog and it, it required a lot of time to just sort of like, and, and persistence to like get it going. But then obviously I left, you know, and, uh, you had, you had at that point, I think run out of time, but, uh, you know, now that I'm here in Addis, I see that, uh, things are moving forward again. Uh, you had a, you recently had a new meetup, you had a, re- you recently had a meetup, hey? Yeah. Well, we, what we did is we've got a, um, committee in place now. Yeah. But this is like we're just going like you know we haven't applied for bank accounts or anything like that. At least it's so we could keep it at that level, right? We just have a committee and then we have an AGM. We have some kind of rules and codes of conduct and that kind of stuff, um, like a constitution. Sure. Uh, and that I think that's sort of step one in the process, right? But it's, it's, how do you progress beyond that? Um, because the Maker Lab group that I'm a part of as well, they also have this discussion, right? You want to start buying equipment and sharing it or. If you're in a lug and you want to organize a, a conference and now you need to start getting money and sponsors and now you need an account, right? And so um, obviously you could just say, well, you set up an account in terms of the association's name and you can hold people responsible there. And if the guy, you know, spends the money incorrectly or in, in contravention of the of the rules or whatever or the agreed mandate that they got given, then you can say, okay, we can, we can you know, vote that person out. But if you look further... Um, and you say, okay, um, we want to get a, an organization of some type up and running. Then you've got to go register with the government and you have to sign up as an NGO. So there's all these Section 21 companies. and But th- those companies, right, are going to require three directors. So now directors aren't elected. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you're on the, like, because, you know, it's like saying you're the owner. So, so then how does that work? Um, you know, uh-huh. and I guess for me, it's just that you, once you start understanding these things, think, well, it's never really made explicit to you. It's kind of presented like it's this kumbaya, we're all working together, and you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I suppose it's also like, like the Debian Foundation, right? Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, I, I guess you're probably going to find this has all been resolved. I, I just don't know about it. <laughs> there must be a way that it works, right? Sure. What I'm saying is, are you end of the day you reliant on what you don't want to be, right? Is end of the day being reliant on, on the goodwill of the person that owns it, just sort of not one day waking up and going bad, right? Yeah. Or turning out to do something that you don't like, or the organization doesn't like this organization that you've been building up mm-hmm. and, and contributing to. I mean, even even the organizations which are associations can do that. I think, like if we look at what's happened with Debian and System D and the animosity that's evolved in the in the community there, and the sort of people have left and all of this um, scenario about it, you know. So even in an association, you could you could put time and effort building it up, and you could end up doing something that you don't like. But at least there, you can try and sort of present your case and build up support for your point of view and do all of that type of stuff. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it's, well, you know, I'm, I'm the owner and, you know, I'm not going to agree to it or whatever. And, you know, you can't just remove me as signatory on the bank accounts or... <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah, I, I guess there's a, 
you know, at the end of the day, I just want to code and create stuff, you know. Um, but unfortunately, you have to start thinking about these things as as things start evolving. So yeah. You know, just the other aspect with these sort of, in particular with tech hubs, is, is like the sustainability. Because a lot of them, you know, I've had a couple of, like, you know, so I experienced um, uh, our hub, right, in Kenya, which is the sort of flagship, uh, what do you call it, hub, tech hub in East Africa. Uh-huh. And they've got a whole bunch of ways of making themselves sustainable around doing like, job placements. And they're quite, it's quite nice. Anybody going into East Africa now, Kenya, will stop there first. You know, any IT company kind of find out who's who and where to go. And, and they've got a research division. But a lot of these other guys are, and probably we can save this for later, another discussion. They will be like, okay, Google has given them a grant for two years of, you know, so many thousands or millions of dollars. Uh-huh. Um, but when that runs out, what is the, where are they going to get more money from? Um, you know, because it does seem to be a little bit of a fad thing as well. Um, you know, everybody's running around sponsoring tech hubs. Um, and then when something else becomes the flavor of the day, are you then left exposed? Um, you know, so, so I suppose we can, yeah, you know, we can, we can look at all of those, all of those things later. Uh, so I suppose we should wrap it up now and then, um, you know, get any feedback from listeners and see if they got any points or anything to contribute. And yeah, we can probably continue this discussion, uh, next episode or later episode once I've got more experience and I've worked out, had time to read the, Linux Foundation, the Free Software Foundation, the Debian Foundation's constitution and how they all work. Right, okay, cool. So uh, what's next? So the next section is uh, what, what we learned this week. I don't know if you want to um, start on that. Uh, what do you, if you learned anything new this week, Dan, anything interesting? I've learned uh, a lot this week, I would say. You know, it's been, um, I'm uh, about three weeks into a new job right now and it's, uh, it's a fully remote job, and uh, so I've been, you know, getting up to speed on um, some of these sort of like processes that people have for uh, managing software projects and projects in general. This these agile methodology that's been a sort of that's been probably the biggest learning curve I've had because I've never worked in this, I've never worked in an organization that used these, um, but that's been uh, pretty uh, fascinating. But I, I'm not yet at the point where I can actually talk very uh, coherently about it, I don't think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the advantages and disadvantages and what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a good experience though so far. You know, know, from what I've seen of it and and what I've experienced of it, it feels feels right in a way. You know, it feels the sort Mm. of, um, the way in which you describe your tasks and the way in which you commit to them and also the way in which it sort of encourages like you know total honesty you know at every step of the way mm-hmm. you know every day we have these uh you know 10 minute stand-up meetings you know on skype you know just to sort of discuss where we are in our in our given projects and it's been really helpful to me to see to see this uh to partake in this process you know um i assume it's a little bit different for you because you're you're working kind of alone right no, we work in, in teams as well, um, okay. but you know what, what I find with the, the agile methodology is a lot of people, everybody says they do it, um, I'm, you know, you get the purists, right, that are going to tell you that you're not doing it the right way and it's like there's this long list of things you must do and mustn't do and all of this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but I think it's getting more more experience, that does depend on the experience of the team members, yeah. end of that you can't get away if you've got like unskilled team members it's just not going to work right yeah um so it kind of relies on the fact that you've already got a team that actually knows what they at least technically knows what they're doing mm-hmm. I, I know it does it does highlight those guys that aren't producing yeah um you know so it's not it's not as much makes it, it yeah it becomes more transparent what's going on yeah and um but you know what i find when you start them out it's like especially management right so to be honest with you this is my take on it and agile i'm still also uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to say right yeah, now, I'm not an agile purist and I probably never experienced a, what an agile purist would say is the correct way of doing agile. Mm-hmm. Right? So having said that, this is, you know, probably the way most other people implement it. But it's, it's great for developers. Yeah. Okay, because you know what it's like, you get the bloody manager coming in and say, oh, this is the beginning of the month, we want you to have this at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. You start working on it and then three days later they come in and say, oh, we need you to fix this. And then that takes you two days. Mm-hmm. Then they come in and say, oh, can you fix that? And then it comes to the end of the month and they say, oh, well, where's the deliverable that we asked for at the beginning of the month? You say, yeah, well, you know, we haven't been working on it. Yeah. 
but they're not aware of that because they just don't remember things. Now they come in every day and then they, they turn around at the end of the month and they say, what have you been doing? You say, but you've been here every day. You know what we've been Great. doing. Um, you know, so much harder for them to kind of, so it, it prevents management incompetence cover-ups kind of story, yeah. I think. Um, but also one of the big problems is, is that, you know, if management still comes in and say, well, let's give these user stories and break them up into sort of tasks you can do. Uh, you know, how long is it going to take? And once again, say so like, you know, I, I can't tell you how long it's going to take uh, unless it's like so, such a small chunk that it's, it's easy to say, yeah. you know, but normally it doesn't get broken down to that kind of level. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of research involved. There's some kind of fleshing out of the requirements. And then I know this is all supposed to come out when you're talking like, what are your impediments and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. But, you know, invariably it's kind of, so when's it, how long is it going to take? And you say, well, dude, you know, we just got you. We all, the team's getting a feel for things. We don't know, you know, what your situation's like. It's going to take like bloody four weeks to get a login kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of it, especially initially, the estimates as, you know, as sort of written down, or as is the sort of standard, up front they're going to be quite rough and they're not going to be accurate and then it gets more accurate with time, right. you know, once the project starts getting going. Mm -hmm. So I think... But what what I find is is that it still becomes these unrealistic estimates get get put on time right, of what should be produced in time and what shouldn't be produced yeah. in time. You know, so and I think that requires a level of maturity which definitely I think doesn't really exist in South Africa. Um, that's <laughs> wow. my. You know, I, didn't, um, I really didn't expect this to turn into an anti-South Africa uh, <laughs> sort of. No, no. I, I I just say it's South African <laughs> management. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it works. It works better. Let's just have interesting to sort of see your your feedback on it. And like, as I say, we when we go in the go into clients, we'll say to them, listen, we are you know following agile, but the whole reason for that is more. That if you're going to bill per hour, that it's transparency for them. Wow, it's costing them the money, and like they can see. Look, it's not like somebody sitting there not doing anything. Right. And you're working every day. It takes as long as it takes to get it done, mm -hmm. right? And um, you know, it's not because the person's. Oh, in our case, you know, we make sure we have got skilled people. It's not because the person's unskilled, but there's just all these challenges which you, which you know, you're unaware of, um, of how to do things, how to set it up. You know, it's like. End of the day, right? You, 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 that sort of modern urban myth, like someone could say, "Well, you know, I've got this idea. I'm just going to go and find some graduates from the university and pay them with pizzas, and after four weeks, I'm going to have my application done." You know, I mean, I don't know where that ever arose from or where they ever got that from, um, but that's a, basically an urban myth, right? I would, you know, I'm I'm sort of a pizza starved here. In uh, yeah, is it? Oh, you'd work for pizza. I would work for pizza. Okay. So, okay. just so you know. <laughs> I'll put you down on the list. Okay, great. <laughs> and you know, look, the problem is you can you can get you can get an app, but like, what quality is it? Mm -hmm. And people only see the front end, and they don't really see the back end, and how how easy it is to maintain, how secure is it? All of these things which you can't really tell when you're just looking at the app from the outside, even if they had the exact same front end. Yeah. Um, you know, so I guess. I guess for me, it, 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 it works better than the waterfall approach. Uh, it still has its challenges. Uh, for me, it's a technique. Uh, and this, once again, other purists out there might, or people with more experience might come and say, well, Mark, you're doing it wrong, which could be the case. Um, but it, it's, it's much more for us, from our side, to, to manage um, clients and to, and to sort of show them, give them transparency into the process. Um, so it works much better than that in terms of the waterfall approach. Sure. Um, but it's, it's still... It's still it's not it's not all the you know land of milk and honey that we, that all these guys promise in the agile textbooks right <laughs> yeah you know I, you know i'm not uh, you know at this point right now i'm sort of kind of new to the process you know it feels good and uh i would say yeah the the estimate the estimations at the time yeah it's always the diffi most difficult part but you know the, the more i do it the more it feels good you know the more i sort of mm. uh the more I learn about my own sort of processes and my own sort of style, because you know, in in a sense, you know, I'm also kind of new to being a, to to working on these particular kinds of projects uh, as well in teams. You know, that's this is also a new thing for me. So um, so yeah, it's been it's been a that's been sort of the main uh, learning experience I've had over the last few weeks. Um, what about you? Well, yeah, just just quickly to finish with that. Yeah. I mean, I look forward to your sort of feedback and your experience with the um, agile process because you know, you know, it's, you always got to check. Right? Maybe, maybe I'm just doing it wrong, or <laughs> I've had bad experiences sure. in other processes where people are running them. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's always it's always the case. To so look, as I say, I do think it's an improvement over what we had, mm -hmm. uh, and it's nice to have given a name and to be able to, uh, you know, 
use it for for some stuff um but yeah but, but i still think it's got its, its, its challenges yeah in fact i also give you feedback because i'm 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 using a variation of the agile process to manage a non-software project mm-hmm. so see how that goes and provide feedback on on that cool. um you know later after once once i feel i've had enough experience to see if it works or not nice <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, what I learned this week, uh, we're sort of running out of time, yeah, so I'll be, be I learned a lot of stuff as, as per usual, I'm always learning new stuff during the week, but uh, one of the things I think I'd like to just share is, and a lot of people probably have questions about this, you know, all these new hard disks since about 2011 have been coming, coming out with um, the disk, uh, with a new sector size, right? So it's called the advanced format standard where they have four kilobytes in size for a sector on your disk as opposed to this additional 512 bytes. Um, you know, and when you're formatting your, your disk or using F-disk or G-disk to create your partitions, sometimes you'll get this, this message that it's not, it's not aligned, sure. right? Um, the partitions aren't aligned. Um, and you're kind of a little bit um, confused about that. Right. And uh, also, what is, you know, you'll see it on F-disk or G-disk will tell you, oh, logical sector size is 512 and the physical is 4K. Mm-hmm. And so, well, okay, must I do anything about that? <laughs> So, uh, I mean, first of all, just explaining a little bit about how the discs work at the, at the low level. And once again, if anybody, this is my understanding of my conceptual model so far. So if anybody out there is a disc expert, they can uh, write in and let us know additional information. But obviously the disc is, you know, it's just a magnetic medium and it gets divided into sectors. And those sectors have traditionally been 512 bytes in size. But, you know, we think about it as 512 bytes, you probably think, okay, yeah, it's my disc, you see it as like a, a long... Um, rectangle and it's divided into even space chunks but really in reality it's not like that it's just like uh, it might be 512 but what is the physical size on the disc right might actually be different in terms of the, the length i suppose if we sort of could measure it and as a how many um circumference in, in centimeters or whatever it is or millimeters does that sector take up and that can vary mm-hmm. right so that's the density so you have a lot of wasted space so just because there's 512 bytes and maybe the you know, the, the actual physical, you've got to be careful because there's a physical size that they refer to, which is 4K, but that's actually the real physical, physical size. So what's been happening is the sort of amount of space on the disk that it actually takes up, um, each 512 bytes is shrinking. Yeah. Because there's still 512 bytes of data being stored there, but the physical size, and, um, you know, disks are getting bigger and bigger, and there's a lot of, like, uh, what you call it, management sectors, if you want, for want of a better word, for each sector. So that 512 bytes, some is used for sync, um, you know, so when the disk is spinning, I have us have I reached the beginning of the new sector yet? The head can read that. There's an address, so it stores the address. Well, what sector number am I? And then there's a data section, and then there's your error correction section. So if it finds a corruption in your data section, it will then you know do some error correction in the error correction part. And that's normally like 50 bytes uh-huh. or so. So a lot of overhead. Um, you know, they reckon about 80% of your 512. Um, but sector is actually available for use with data. The rest is all management stuff. Wow. So as disks get bigger, more space is wasted. Mm-hmm. But also the, the sectors are getting smaller and smaller. And this is where I say the physical sector is getting smaller and smaller. This is not what they call the four kilobytes physical space. Right. <laughs> but the, and the problem there is now is like the data, the 512 bytes was like spread over like let's say a much wider area on the disk before. Mm-hmm. So if there was like somebody scratched something, maybe you only knocked out, you know, uh, I don't know, one byte of data. Huh? Now, if you scratch it, you're potentially wiping out two or three bytes because they're so close together, mm. as it were. Okay? Or there's some kind, like it's dust on the disk or something like that. So your error, your error rate goes up because the, the actual spaces or the actual places where your, where your data is physically stored um, are much closer together now. I think I ran into um, this sort of advanced format standard, these issues you were describing in the beginning when I was having my um, hard drive issues, because I was sort of backing up from an SSD to a, an HD, a, uh, you know, an SSD to a, a standard hard disk, and um, some of the advi- you know, some of the advice I found online and sort sort of uh, what I kind of expected to see was sort of confusing to me in terms of sector sizes, like the sectors, the sector markings were were that was like a big source of confusion in my sort of recovery efforts you know i didn't actually i mean thankfully you know i was able you know thanks to uh the, the tool i mentioned uh, i think last week test disk thanks to that it, it was able to i was able to sort of re- recover things without having to get too much into these details but i'm curious like what was the sort of uh context for learning this 
Well, it's just that I've been seeing it um, you know, crop up on, on disks, uh, especially we do a lot of a lot of Linux training and then you sort of um, formatting uh, USB sticks all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're seeing, and, and sometimes hard disks and stuff like that during class and you're seeing these different things and you're seeing how F-disk is changing over time. Um, you know, it used to give you cylinder head and sectors that geometry now it no longer does that, right? That's the old way of, of, of addressing a, a sector on your disk with the cylinder head and sector uh, marking, you know, and then, you know, then they replaced that with LBA, the logical block address, um, and that had to translate from cylinder head and sectors. And so it's just sort of, um, and also then just wanted to get the best performance from my disks. Right. Uh, I'm also getting some newer disks now, and I'm seeing that coming out. When you do F-disk, I'll tell you it's um, four kilobits physical and 512 logical. Yeah. So I think, well, that sounds bad. I mean, you know, they must they must match up. So you're reading, you wouldn't want to store, uh, when you first come across, say, well, I don't want to store 512 bytes, and then it's actually going to take 4K. Yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> on my disk because they're wasting a lot of space uh-huh. and obviously reading stuff back um, so that's really you know so how best to set up your disks and partition your disks and is there anything I need to do when I put the file system on it so it's, one is creating the partitions other one is creating the file system how do I optimize it and that's what I, I started researching and just in general also interested in understanding how disks work at the, at the lower level right because it always helps with recovery if you know you have a better understanding of what's happening under all the layers of abstraction um you've got a better chance of sorting out your problem so you know what what i've discovered or read up so far is that um so all these disks are coming out with the four kilobytes and the idea there is okay better less overhead lost or less space lost due to all of this sort of um, management information as it were and also less you know you you reduce the 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 chance of a of running out of um error correction code space because um, you know you've got you've got these 50 bytes and now the the, the sectors are actually they don't really like to say sector because sector but the, the data is closer together mm-hmm. right um, so I suppose some if I read more a, a sector must be broken up into even smaller components right right <laughs> um, blocks right so let's I might be using the wrong term there but let's say the sectors are broken up into blocks the blocks aren't located too close to each other so there's more there's more corruption mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes more efficient for space, um, better for error correction, and you can have larger sort of ECC blocks. And then the, the thing is, well, what must I do about this as a user of these disks? Because the reason they've got 512 there is because that sort of old standard is sometimes hard-coded into file systems or into different tools and utilities, right? So obviously, you can fit about 8, 512, well, exactly 8, 512, 12-bit, 12, 12, 12-byte blocks into your 4K um, block. And the whole thing now is I want to align those five, th- those, those eight blocks inside it. So you want to start at alignment that they call zero. And if it misaligns and it starts at one, then you have to read two 4K bytes to get your full um, logical bytes read ret- 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 into memory. Yeah. So what this, well, what they say is reading actually isn't a problem because they, they just read the whole four kilobit. Like if you address a 512 byte block, they'll read the whole four kilobit block into, into the memory on the disk. So this is the firmware on the disk that's running there where the NSA stores all of the <laughs> malware. And, uh. <laughs> um, it reads it into memory on the disk. The disk says, okay, I read the 4K, only want 512 blocks, but, and that, that then extracts it and sends it through to, to the CPU. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that, they say, doesn't really have much of an impact on, on, on performance, the reading. So it's the writing, because what will happen with the writing is it has to read it into memory, find the 512 blocks that you want to update in that 4 kilobit block, update it, wait for the disk to spin around again, and then write the whole 4 kilobit block back. And so if you misaligned, it can be uh, very costly to do that. Hmm. Um, so if they if you align correctly, then you don't, have a, you don't have a problem. It just reads the whole 4 kilobits into... Um, into the disk and writes it out again. Right. right. Um, one thing I must follow up is because that, that that sort of that cycle, which they call the read, modify, write cycle, um, you know, which takes three steps as opposed to just reading, which can take basically one step. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that cycle should still a, a supply should still apply, I suppose, even if you align properly, right? And maybe this work like that generally. You know, they read it. You have to wait for the disk to spin around, then you write it back out, right? Because um, one would imagine maybe you could just do a write thing. So yeah, it's four kilobits. Just write it. I say, oh, it's coming up under the head right now. Let me just write the whole four kilobits out. You don't have to read the old four kilobits into memory and then uh, add your stuff and then write it out uh-huh. again, right? Because I mean, that's if you're writing four kilobit chunks, you could do that. If you're writing five twelve kilobit chunks, I mean five twelve bytes chunks, well then you have to see well, what's already on the disk and update just that as five twelve bytes. Um, and I think what the argument there is, you know, as I'm talking, a sort of um, threads are coming together in my mind. 
it could be that they say is, is that luckily uh, most files these days, you know, they're going to be larger than four, four kilobits, right? You've, like you've got pictures and movies and documents and stuff. So there's like a four kilobit chunk. I mean, I, I compress my images a lot. So, uh, you know, sometimes they do fit into 4K. That's not true. Yeah, so maybe. <laughs> yeah, on. so well, yeah, that, well, you know, maybe that's the marking stuff. This was, this was from the Seagate site. Sure. So, <laughs> uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. So what they say is, is then that, you know, you're going to write in four kilobit chunks most of the time. Obviously, if you get to the end of the file, it's not four kilobits, and that bit's a bit slower. But And they're saying things like file system information, journaling tends to be less than four kilobits. But luckily, that, they say, well, you know, it's not as significant impact as, as writing files yeah. um, in, from, to the disk. So anyway, I mean, that's all interesting stuff. Um, it's good to know. And so what, what can I do about it as a normal Linux user? And essentially all that, it's like, well, you don't have to worry about it kind of approach uh, came out of what I could read, unless you sort of were caught on the cusp of the changeover with FDIS. So all these new tools now will understand the four kilobit uh, sector sizes and they will align your partitions to the four kilobit sector sizes. So in the past, FDIS used to use, the it would start the first, you know when you've got FDIS and you say, what's going to be your starting block? And it's always some number that's never zero. Yeah. Course, that's if you're using FDISC. You know, that's because they would start at sector 63 in the past. Yeah. Now they're starting at, um, not at sector 63, they're starting basically two megabits into the, into the hard disk. Mm-hmm. So the first two megabits are just basically free and unused, unallocated um, in the new F-disks. And, um, and that's to align your sectors with this four kilobits, uh, you know, physical sector, or to, to, align your, yeah, to, to align your partitions with the four kilobit sector so you don't have these misaligned um, partitions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's two things. For me, it's interesting to know that the first two megabits, you know, why aren't they? So it's kind of also useful. Well, why don't they just align from zero and not waste two megabits, right? Um, and it just seems to be, well, that's the way things were done in the past. Maybe it was because, like, the, especially the first 63 not being used. Why was that? I suppose just to, to leave some space available uh, to make sure that we're not, you know, maybe there's some information at the beginning of the disk. I know one of the things you can have there is, like, grub, you know, so you've got the first 12 bytes, I think, of the disk is normally your MBR in the old, before they, you know, before the new G, GPT table formats have come out. Uh, first, so, so your MBR would write into that, but then it wasn't enough to contain Grub. So then Grub would write into the sectors after that. So you want to leave them unallocated so Grub can have its stuff in there. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to start at zero because you would have, um, you know, Grub wouldn't be able to work. And um, so now it's two megabits in size. Uh, that's an unallocated sector in the front. And, so, and GPT, you know, they're not using MBR anymore. So, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's what I could gather is kind of, well, you know, that's just the way it is. And, um, you know, there's no point in going back now and, and changing it and trying to, trying to save two megabits of disk space by going from a lower sector. Because right. Right? let's say the one sector 63 and now they want to align with four, with four kilobits, why don't you start a sector 64? So um, maybe there's some other more technical reasons for it, but it hasn't come up in my research just yet. Mm. And uh, yeah, so so I said these new things start with apparently Gparted. You can actually like with FDIS, you can't choose your starting partition normally for your very first partition. Always start from 2048. I mean, you can choose to start from something other than 2048, uh-huh. but the lowest you can go is 2048. Apparently with Gparted, you can actually go lower. Oh, okay. Um, but I have to test it out. So interesting to know. I'll play around with some disks and see what it does and what does it cause any problems just out of interest more than anything else right um, anyway to sort of see if your disk is a four kilobit uh, disk size sector size you can use the F disk will show you that if you've got F disk for like dev SDA um, so on my newer drive what the computer I got yeah it showed me 4k lo- uh, physical and 512 five, bytes logical uh-huh. um, and you can also go cat like sys block your drive like SDA Q and then logical block size or physical block size and it'll tell you the, the difference between the two the one thing that is a bit odd on my older machine um, if I go F disk it tells me it's 512 physical and 512 uh, logical but when I when I cut out the sys block SDA Q logical block length and physical block length it tells me physical is 4k and Logical's 512, 512 bytes. So I'm not quite sure what's going on. Mm. And I suppose this is where it becomes an issue. If you've got some older disks from a machine that got formatted before the new F disk came out, you might be, you know, you're going to be on 512 instead of this four kilobit block. But then again, that older disk won't support the four kilobit, you know, advanced format standard. So 
it's probably one of those things which it looks like, well, you know, the tool has all been adjusted to take care of it. It's happening behind the scenes. If it comes and bites you for some reason, you have to research it and, and find out what to do to fix it. But as a normal user, you'll create your file system and should start using these four kilobit. Well, the file system <laughs> block size always was different anyway um, to the actual physical sector block size. Um, you know, so it's interesting to, to, to learn all these kind of things to make sure that you're getting the best performance from your right. disk. Right? Uh, so, as a normal user, you want to create your file system, dot, dot, dot. I find that a funny sentence. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I guess yeah. it depends on our audience, right? <laughs> yeah, for our audience, it, it's, it's like, you know, uh, and there might be some more interesting stuff uh, about, about this, getting the, the sector alignments right, et cetera, and things like that. Um, obviously, with time, I think it will become less of an issue because everything's going to be this... Uh, four kilobit size. I suppose there's always going to be something that's hanging around still using the 512 byte size and there'll be a while before that um, logical size disappears. Right. Well, it, just so you know, um, I've done the cat sys block SDAQ physical block size and logical block size on my home server and they're both 512. So... Yeah, how old is that disk? Is it relatively new or...? It's, um... They're... Uh, well, they're both... They're, I have three two terabyte drives in oh, that should be fairly new yeah. definitely post 2011 yes for sure so yeah so they should that, that that's what i find a bit weird from what i'm reading you know because they say this thing from 2011 onwards all disc manufacturers were told they must use uh, i mean because where i understand it right it's not that if this could change that's a physical thing on the disc right. Right? coming from the firmware so you couldn't well because you because you created your petitions with an old if this could some, somehow change that yeah um, you know, you know. Anyway, I, I could be wrong. This is what's always good about discussing and 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 uh, chatting about things because now you kind of got more information. You can check out as we go and as you learn more things in life. Uh, you know, that's that's what's you can always add to your knowledge. And that, that's what one thing I want to say to people: it's always good to discuss with people because, like, now you're telling me that information, I can edit what I know. Mm. And then later, I'll come across something where I can put the two together and say, okay, now my conceptual model was incorrect, or I've got this new conceptual model that can take account of all of these. Um, observations that we've made. So yeah, well, thanks for Running. that, uh, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay, I suppose we better get on with the podcast. Let's uh, wrap up. There's a whole lot of other stuff we can talk about next week or next episode, like DSTAT and um, you know, good stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, but let's go on to the to the gig guard. Uh, first, just give some feedback. We had the lug meetup. We had our Jurgens Dutoy come and talk there about uh, Logstash and Elasticsearch and stuff like that. Uh, you know, his name is Eager Elk. He's got a blog called blog.eagerelk.com. Mm-hmm. It would be really cool if it was eagerbeaver.com, but anyway. Elk <laughs> um, is, is, is like a log analysis or a log. Uh, I'm probably I'm probably messing it up, yeah. But where I understood Alk, Alka and sort of Logstash competed, and uh, this is why I'm a bit confused. Obviously, I wasn't listening to you well in the talk um, <laughs> because I was like, well, he's talking Eager Alk, but he's talking about Logstash. And then I kind of just quickly read up on his, you know, his Twitter account. And he said, no, no, he's going to talk about Alk at the at the at the Lug meetup. I thought he was talking about Logstash, um, but apparently they work together. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bit confused about Elk, uh, Logstash, Elasticsearch, I kind of know what that does is for, you know, it's for full text searching kind mm-hmm. of thing. But if anybody's interested, there's more information at blog.eagerelk.com. I'll put this in the show notes. He's also writing a book. He's quite, uh, he's writing a book on um, Logstash and Elk and all of that good stuff. So hopefully that comes out soon. Um, it's always good to have uh, people of his sort of level of knowledge and they're talking at the, at the lug meetups about it. It was a lot of interest. It had quite a good turnout. Um, and then I talked there about um, namespaces in Linux, just basically, uh, maybe we can also talk about that next week. You know, I research I'm doing into namespaces, which is the new thingy behind um, all this containerization in Linux, right? um, all the new hotness there. So is it, so, um, yeah. is it something that is uh, different from uh, Docker or is it... Um... Is it more of a, a standardized uh, version of what you get from a Docker container, say? It's basically what Docker and all of these things are using and, and Linux containers are using, exploiting to create their functionality. So they sit on top of this this underlying functionality in the kernel now. Okay. Uh, and they just bring it together, just expose it to, to user space, right. um, you know, in, in a sort of... Uh, yeah, I got. A, I'm also in terms of my current research. This is like, hmm, this is very interesting. How come there's very few user land tools for this other than things like Docker and Linux containers, which kind of. Uh, I, I better be careful what I say. I don't know enough about um, 
those tools but it's almost like it's not really the unix way where there's lots of little tools you can use and user land to put things together you have to kind of go through these things that do it all for you yeah um you know and kind of you sort of think well is that because there's more money that way (laughs) i mean there are some utilities uh out there that you can use like you know from your bash prompt right like unshare and ns enter Uh and all of this kind of stuff um and obviously, you do need a tool that sits on top that brings it all together nicely. And but, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, let me let me let me leave it at that. I need to I need to understand more before I pass any judgment. <laughs> I guess you know I you know I've used Docker before and I've never really thought so much about what the sort of underlying plumbing was, um, because it just seems to kind of work. You know, once I got my, once I wrapped my head around the sort of Docker the container conceptual model. I was just happy to use Docker, so it's it's interesting to to go. What's the benefit of of going deeper and and learning about the um, what what makes it work? Once you know what's happening under, underneath, you can actually see well, what other solutions can I yeah. build that maybe are sort of like Docker but different and provide different benefits and functionality. Um, you know, and maybe also as me as my knowledge grows, you sort of tend to dig deeper, like. Virtualization, right? I just use KVM, and I'm sure that's sitting on top of a, a lot of underlying stuff. And um, you know, there's a lot of things in there which you could, like tools that you could use yourself. Yeah. Um, maybe I, I, you know. So so yeah, you know, I also still need to move more into the Docker space. I'm kind of waiting for that thing to settle down a little bit because it's core OS. There's all of these now. There's like um, what do you call that? There's it always was Linux containers, which Docker built on. Mm-hmm. But now you've got um, lightweight containers from Ubuntu, which is also coming out. You know, you want to wait before I sort of invest too much. Oh, this wasp is not inside my sunroom yet. Yeah, but luckily, it's stuck on the window looking out, and it's not buzzing around my head. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you hear a, a sudden scream of, uh, you know, or some lots of trashing about <laughs> and swearing and stuff, you know, it's me fending off this wasp. <laughs> Anyway, it looks docile enough mm-hmm. now. Hopefully it doesn't decide to build this nest yet because it's about the time I start doing yeah. that. Anyway, uh, yeah, so so yeah, for me it's like that, right? It's like, well, if you're going to build new tools that can do new things, uh, you've got to understand the underlying technology. And besides the fun factor, right? Um, so what, what I can do at the moment, which is pretty cool, uh, you know, I can launch VR with PID1, you know, which is pretty cool. True. <laughs> You can have like shared months, non-shared months. So, you know, and also you can do things like your own user namespace. Other, but that's a bit harder to kind of do from just a command line perspective because where's your user database? But you can also do things like networking is quite cool. You can do networking different namespaces. So you can bind one process to, to bind to like 10.0.0.2 and that'll be invisible to another process. A patch you could be running in that, and it could be answering requests off the network, and you could run, you know, MySQL or PostgreSQL in another Great. Um, process, uh, running on 192.168.20 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and unaware of each other, you can route the, you know, if you've got, if you, you, you can have a virtual ethernet in either the namespace, and you can route traffic between the two, but somebody from the network could ping, it could come through your machine that they won't be aware, they can come to the Apache one on 10, mm-hmm. and they could come to your, you know, PostgreSQL server on the 192 address, and they wouldn't really be aware that they on the same thing, right. you know? So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's pretty cool. We can chat about it, you know, um, next episode as well, and um, talk about that. So the next... Um, upcoming meetup it was, it was make labs a meet every wednesday so the yeah so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there the 3d printers and they're building a 3d sort of etching machine to to build a printed circuit board which is quite cool, cool. on uh, 31st so every wednesday um at, at jumping beans offices that's downstairs in the storeroom area they meet there and then we've got August the 31st, there's the Java user group meetup again. Um, I think we, it's still the one that you mentioned last episode. They've got robust REST architecture for the advanced group. And the beginners group, they've got rapid prototyping with JBoss Forge. Cool. Um, yeah, and that's it for the wrap-ups. Uh, Dan, you got anything else to add? Or uh, No, I mean, it's, we're at the, uh, the end of the show here. And um, I just wanted to say thank you for listening. And I uh, hope you had a nice time with our podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, hope, thank you for listening, everybody. And please provide us with any feedback. Um, as I say, we've got our email addresses, dan at codinginafrica.com and mark at codinginafrica.com. And soon we'll have that contact form up I've been promising you about. <laughs> so, Dan, where else can people reach you? 
on social media? So uh, my name is Dan Fowler, and that's uh, my Twitter account and my GitHub account, and also my domain name, danfowler.net. Nice and simple. On Twitter, I'm at MXE, Mark XY Charlie 4, um, and on GitHub, it's Mark XY Charlie, so I can be reached there. I've also got a you know, Google Plus account and all of that kind of stuff, but um, people can reach me. That's mclark4 at gmail.com. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening and catch you next time.